Hello and welcome back to the 10th episode of the Rethink Wireless podcast, where our analysts here at Rethink talk about the week's wireless news. I'm Luke Brown, and with me today are our principal analysts, Caroline Gabriel and Phil Hunter. Hello. Hi there. Today, Caroline will bring us some news and analysis about Celnix, and Phil will share some thoughts on gaming at the Consumer Electronics Show and in general. Um, let's start with you, Caroline. You wrote a piece on Cellnex's radical new growth strategy in this week's issue. What was the old issue? Why are Cellnex transitioning? And uh, how did it make the headlines last week? Yes, it's um, a, a very interesting topic, this one. Um, Cellnex, for anyone who doesn't know, is the largest tower operator um, in Europe as in an independent tower operator that's not owned by mobile operators. Um, And it's uh, grown rapidly um, over the past few years, um, building out to a huge portfolio um, of infrastructure to support mobile networks. Um, So cell towers uh, were the heart of that, but they also own many other types of sites, such as rooftops, um, infrastructure to to support small cells. um, And they're increasingly um, diversifying that business, um, as we'll talk about today. Most of their expansion has been through acquisition. Um, So Cellnex uh, has has been, over the last few years, Cellnex has been growing um, its geographical reach into many European markets. Um, Germany is probably the the big one where it's missing, but it's in most of the other major markets. Um, And also um, acquiring companies to help it extend its business into areas such as enterprise networks. Um, But it was very much focused on uh, on M&A, on inorganic growth, very rapid expansion. just at the end of last year, um, Cellnex signalled that it was going to have quite a, a dramatic change um, of direction. They were going to end the policy of major acquisitions. They were going to double down on expanding and consolidating the uh, portfolio of sites that they have in an, uh, an organic way, uh, so chasing organic business growth. And while they they will continue to expand um, the business. If they make acquisitions, it will just be sort of small tactical companies. And for instance, they they bought a, a small um, company focused on in building wireless in the UK um, last year. Um, uh, so they sort of set out that they're having this change of direction. I mean, it's driven by many factors. Um, one is just they've got to a certain scale where if they keep buying um, more large companies in Europe, it will start to attract probably regulatory scrutiny from um, anti-monopoly committees in in Europe or in individual markets. And there was a lot of scrutiny of a a big deal that Cellnex did to acquire um, UK and other towers from from Hutchison Group. Uh, So that, uh, particularly in uh, the UK regulator, put in some quite strong conditions for that. So Cellnex can probably see that any further acquisitions are going to be more and more difficult to achieve um, because uh, regulators will be concerned that they will be too dominant in the market and that will not be a competitive environment for their customers. And their customers are mainly the mobile operators who rent the space on their infrastructure to implement their networks. But they they have a sort of growing base of other customers as well, such as enterprises. Um, But there are other reasons uh, for slowing down. There there are fewer deals available. Most operators in Europe that have decided to sell off um, their towers um, have already done so. 
Um, the last big sale was uh, Deutsche Telekoms and Celnex um, did not in the end um, uh, buy that that particular business that was that was bought by two other investors. Um, inflation and general economic conditions are not really um, favouring um, large scale um, infrastructure M&A. Um, so lots of reasons why they're transitioning um, and they have signaled that, as I said, to shareholders um, and the market uh, last autumn. But um, this month we've seen the departure of their CEO, Tobias Martinez. Um, he was the man who uh, who led uh, very successfully their expansion strategy. Um, he's been an extraordinarily successful CEO in terms of the size of Selnex, how, how fast it's grown, but also um, its market valuation. Um, so he, uh, the, the big headlines um, this month have been that he has decided to um, to step aside, um, and uh, they will be looking for a you know a new chief exec now. Why why is he stepping aside? Um, how how does that relate to the new strategy? Yes, I mean it does direct you know believed. Um, it relates directly to the new strategy and he gave quite a detailed explanation of why he decided to go um in the in a filing to the um to the stock markets so um uh, i think i mean there's no indication that martinez does not support the new strategy he's very supportive of it he's he recognized that it's time for Selnex to change direction um and he's clearly moving um stepping aside voluntarily you know, often ceos um, are pushed out when there's a, a major change, but as I say, he's he's succeeded on nearly all the targets that were ever set for him. So this is uh, this is his own decision. Um, he seems to be someone who wants to leave when he's at the top of the game, and he clearly feels that his particular strengths are in driving a, a big expansion um, strategy and um, masterminding major acquisition deals and so on. Now that Selnex is is looking at a very different way um, to grow, trying to grow organic revenues um, and perhaps make partnerships and small acquisitions, I think he just feels that's not his skill set and that's not where he will bring the best leadership and that Selnex will do better to have uh, a leader whose expertise and experience uh, really lies in driving that organic growth and perhaps some deep experience of some of the new markets that Selnex wants to be in. So, you know, Martinez was very much driving a company that is basically an infrastructure owner, a real estate company. Um, a lot of its business is about scale and it's about how they can monetize um, towers and other sites, how many tenants they can get on a site, what services they can add to that. Now, Selnex is looking at all kinds of different markets, such as private networks, active networks, fiber. Um, and and these, these have different business models, different economics, um, different sort of ROI models. Uh, so um, I, I think that Martinez thinks that there are probably other people out there who have much deeper experience of those particular um, growth areas. Um, yeah. What, what are some of those examples of um, of how of words trying to diversify into um, how does it plan to generate the new growth yes I mean some of its growth will come from continuing to expand its existing business but organically so building new towers um, and other sites increasingly those are built what they the industry calls build to suit. In other words, they are building sites to order for operator customers rather than just building out a big network and then encouraging operators to come and, and use those sites. So there'll be quite a lot of um, 
expansion of the conventional business uh, with added value, whether that's build to suit or whether that's um, at offering more um, services rather than just offering um, sites, uh, but offering management of the sites, perhaps offering proactive maintenance. A lot of tower codes, including Selnex, are investing in AI, for instance, so that they can use drones to go around and, and check that the all equipment is up and running um, and that the, the tower is in good order. So some of this is about adding value um, and margin to the existing um, business and getting uh, bigger and more strategic relationships with the operator customers. But there's also um, quite a lot of diversification into other areas. So these are still areas of infrastructure. They are related areas. So that isn't just sort of going into random new markets. But Selnex is seeing operators needing a much more diverse range of infrastructure. So as well as the classic sites, they're building small cells that might be on lampposts or might be within the building. They are integrating their networks with edge compute um, to support various enterprise applications. Um, they need much more dense um, fiber networks to backhaul all these different pieces of equipment. Um, and also we're seeing new operators deploying networks, particularly private network operators. So all of this gives opportunity for Cellnex to um, expand uh, on its core business into other areas in line with the diversification of telecom infrastructure in general. So some of its key areas are um, to invest in uh, data center infrastructures and particularly edge compute. Um, and it's just announced uh, a, an agreement with a company called Vapor.io. Um, and Vapor builds out edge compute infrastructure, uh, which like the towers is offered on a neutral host basis. So any operators or enterprises can just come and, and rent space on it. And Vapor.io has worked, uh, often deploys these edge data centers on or near cell sites. And it has relationships with most of the American tower codes, but this is its first big European alliance. So that's one example is the, the edge side of things. Um, in terms of the small cell network, so Cellnex has been active for many years, particularly in Spain, its home market, um, in offering um, consolidating infrastructure and doing deals with owners of sites such as lampposts and other street furniture. So it would it would work in partnership with whoever owns that infrastructure. It might be the local authority, it might be a billboard operator and so on. Um, and Cellnex will bring all those sort of sites together and offer them as a one-stop shop to, um, to operators deploying city networks. It's also been expanding that business into in-building networks. Um, and it supports quite a lot of uh, indoor networks, for instance, in large venues such as stadiums. Um, but now it's expanding from that into supporting private networks um, within enterprises. Um, and finally, it's got a, a growing fibre business. It, it owns um, uh, quite many kilometres of fibre and will probably uh, build out more or um, work with dark fibre operators so that in the end it can go to its operator customers and um, say, right, we, we can do a deal with you that includes all of your requirements for building out your network, from the big towers to the backhaul to the small cell sites uh, to the edge compute. And this is a, a model that's been very much pioneered by the big American tower codes, such as Crown Castle. Um, and we can see Cellnex uh, trying, trying to do the same thing. It has two effects on the business. One is it can offer far more um, services to its its established user base, so it can um, have a much more uh, valuable and rich relationship with them. 
but also it allows it to target um, new deployers. Um, so companies who will deploy uh, mobile networks, but who won't be doing it on towers. They'll be doing it in enterprises, along railways and, and so on. Um, how does, yeah, let's talk about the other uh, tower codes as well. How, how does Cellnex's situation and how do their actions there compare to the wider um, tower co environment? They're probably, among the, the big um, international tower codes, they are more diverse. Um, they're pursuing more different routes of expansion than most other tower codes. I think the most comparable is Crown Castle in the USA, which also has many strands um, of expansion. Um, it's you know, also looking at edge compute and fiber and small cells. So most other large tower codes are investigating those different um, potential markets, but are less advanced in actually forming the partnerships or buying the infrastructure to support that. So in the United States, for instance, the other two big tower codes are American Tower and uh, SBA. Uh, and both of those are now moving um, quite quickly into expanding um, into uh, particularly edge compute, but also private networks, stadiums and so on. But uh, but it's a little more, uh, a little less mature, sorry, than Cellnex or, uh, or Crown Castle. Um, but those tower codes, uh, again, American Tower is, is comparable in that it was pursuing um, very quick expansion by making big acquisitions in lots of markets around the world. So despite its name, it operates in many markets outside of America. Um, but as those deals become more difficult or there are fewer of them available um, or the, the sort of money situation doesn't lend itself to major M&A, uh, American Tower is also looking for far more um, organic growth and diversification, particularly in its home market. But in Europe, American Tower is a big player there, so we can expect them to be looking at some of the same opportunities as Selnex, even though it's, uh, it's less established in that market. And the other really big European player is Vantage Towers, which was um, carved out of Vodafone. Um, and when they, they had an, uh, an IPO, a public offering, and uh, part of their um, prospectus was that they would um, diversify into many types of infrastructure and that they also plan to run some active networks, um, actually running the, the, the radio access network itself and not just the underlying um, sites and, and infrastructure. And this is an area that um, the big tower codes have been looking at for a long time. It's a very different set of skills and a very different business model from running uh, pure infrastructure. So Celnex has, has gone a little uh, way in that direction, mainly in Poland. Um, where it made an acquisition that included um, running an active network that could on a neutral host basis so that it can be shared by different operators. And there's quite a lot of opportunity in, in building and enterprise scenarios to build one network that can then uh, support all, uh, all the mobile operators. So, um, so we're expecting um, uh, Cellnex and, and some other operators, uh, tower operators, uh, to move a bit more into uh, active networks. So as I say, Vantage has definitely uh, said that that is a strategic goal. Um, E.co is a big tower co in uh, Malaysia, um, and they've been a real pioneer of neutral host active networks, mainly on the small cell side. Um, and there are some some other examples. But generally, I'd say Cellnex is, is in the among the top five in terms of uh, how mature is its strategy um, to diversify? And because of its huge scale, of course, it's it's sort of well placed to 
uh, to deploy new services um, quite quite effectively, quite and quite uh, cost effectively across multiple markets. Okay, thank you for that, Caroline. Um, let's get to you now, Phil. What was the mood like for gaming at um, this year's edition of the Consumer Electronics Show? Um, were there any changes from previous years? Uh, thank you. Yeah, yes, um, I would. I would say there were. I mean, I mean, um, CES is something that we do follow to an extent at Wireless Watch because there are a number of mobile-related um, developments and announcements there. And um, in the past, I would say that gaming hasn't really been one of them. You know, we maybe touched on it, but I would say this year um, gaming was much more prominent at um, CES than before. And given that the reason for that was almost entirely the improved wireless connectivity and especially lower latency enabled by 5G, it sort of has very much come onto our radar screen. So I would say the, the mood at CES surrounding gaming generally was pretty upbeat this year. And uh, in a nutshell, I think the era of cloud gaming accessible for more general devices over mobile networks was generally thought to be now underway. And um, that sort of sentiment was sort of summarized by one of the big specialized gaming hardware vendors called, called Razer there, an American and Singaporean vendor. And um, their co-founder and chief executive Min Liang Tang sort of um, in his speech said that um, 5G was itself responsible for bringing PC gaming to the masses. So if you sort of actually look at how that um, translated into announcements at um, CES, I mean, I mean for, year, for some years there's been a big gaming announcement at CES around devices, but there's always been this feeling that it's, although obviously a big market, was really confined to users of... Um, specialized platforms and like PlayStation and Xbox from Sony and Microsoft. And, um, and this year, if you looked at some of the devices that were announced, you saw more that were not, that were, had a gaming slant, but weren't purely gaming devices. So uh, um, even on the smartphone side, and we also had Dell's, some, some redesigned laptops from Dell. Um, it's G15 and G16, which were sort of pitched at gamers, but they're not primarily gamers. You know, a lot of people would be quite glad to have that power, that graphics power for general applications, and um, they, they, they incorporate the, the latest graphics chips from NVIDIA, and their starting prices are, again, you see, at 849, I think, for the G15, and about one. Like fifteen hundred for the G sixteen, so they are sort of within range of sort of the normal laptop buyers, I would say. So those, um, that, that, so that's really it in a nutshell. I would say that um, um, gaming was more prominent because of five G, and and there's talk more now about cloud gaming being a reality. Yeah, how, what do you think about these claims of of that five G? And especially ultra low latencies, um, that that would boost gaming. How do, how does that hold up? Do you think right now? Well, I mean, yes. But I suppose there's two questions here. There's there's how how low are the latencies now being delivered in practice, you know, consistently. Because um, and the second question is what how how low do they need to be for gaming? Um, 
uh, I mean, g- gaming is demanding because of the very nature of it. That, that there's a certain when the latency goes above a certain amount, and the, the whole thing sort of breaks down because you don't get the response in time. You're not able to be competitive. You can't respond to somebody else's action in time. And gaming does require pretty low latencies, which we'll maybe come on to a little bit more in a minute. In terms of what 5G delivers, you know, I mean, I mean we've, all, we've all heard about that promise of sort of one millisecond, but to me, that's only really deliverable over very short distances because of the um, time taken for the signals to be transmitted end-to-end over any great distance. And so um, there was, there have been some surveys of 5G services sort of already conducted and um, we are sort of perhaps talking about 50 milliseconds being the kind of level below which you want to ideally get for gaming and and the um, Seattle-based company Ookla has a subsidiary called Rootmetrics. They sort of measured three 5G network in the UK at an average ping time of 70 milliseconds in central London, and that compared with 50 milliseconds on its 4G network, which I thought sounded pretty good. Anyway, and you're talking of, I mean, I mean if, you're, if you compare those with, say, f- typical fibre values over fibre networks, I mean, fibre obviously gives you a lot more capacity still, but the actual latencies are getting over perhaps sort of uh, lengths are sort of often in the same ballpark, you know, sort of 20, around 20, 25 milliseconds and so on. And so, and so the key point is that these ping measurements there were made over relatively local links and wouldn't have been obtained over long distance links, given that in practice, um, the speed of signals in through fiber is about half that of the speed of light. That's about 150,000 kilometers per second. So if you sort of bring that down, that's about an average delay of nine milliseconds per thousand miles or about 1,600 kilometers. Always worth bearing in mind when making these calculations. <clears throat> so um, that sort of answers that side of the question, I think. Um, what... What latencies do you think um, can we expect in the long term? For do you think this London was it seventeen millisecond? Um, do you think that's an outlier? Um, do you think it will come within the range um, for gaming and you know in a, in a widespread? Um... It may be a bit of an outlier earlier, but to no, but no, it, it is very much the sort of levels we'll be expecting. And as I say, if you compare. It's worth comparing gaming, perhaps, with some of the other ultra-low latency use cases I talked about on the manu- on the industrial and the engineering side, when you know for process control in factories and um, robotics and control of unattended automated vehicles, which could be anything from forklifts in a in a in a factory, but or particularly drone control. For some of those applications, you really do need to get your latencies right down to the bone, getting towards that one millisecond level. And that can only be um, obtained locally with an edge compute. But of course, it's only needed locally in many of those cases. Whereas gaming needs to be over a somewhat wider range, you know, even if it won't ever work worldwide at the highest performance level. So the fact is that that 50 milliseconds does give you um, a little bit of leeway and allows you to be able to run these applications over at least a regional 
basis. So, um, I mean, I mean, I mean, it's certainly true <coughs> that gaming, like other applications, requires a, a seems to demand ever more bandwidth and ever lower, lower latencies. But, 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 but in the case, in the case of latency, unlike bandwidth, you you do get to a level when you've met the requirements for your application, and you don't, and and, and any further improvement is really not so relevant, whereas in the case of sort of um, capacity and bit rate, you can always sort of demand ever ever more. I think that's probably um, the case there. What, so if not for gaming, um, where 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 else could um, these low, these new low latencies, um, where where else could they be important? Well, I mean, I mean, we've talked about the, the industrial mm. side, but here we're looking at maybe consumer applications and um, <clears throat> the one that did sort of crop up at CES, and it's one that we've touched on before in um, Wireless Watch, is sort of real-time sports betting, which has been a fast-growing area. I mean, uh, you know, some some people may be aware of of what you can do if you if you're talking about events such as football matches or tennis matches, which are the two that perhaps are particularly spring to mind, you can bet on events such as the next goal being scored, or even in tennis matches, often down to the outcome of a game currently underway. And you're sort of getting down to events sort of playing out within seconds. And, um, you know, obviously, in in the past, um, it was not really possible to actually deliver the latency required to make those applications deliverable on a fair basis to over the internet and you had this this um you had this sort of phenomenon of court side <laughs> where people i think it was you know, i think it was called court siding where people would actually be at the event and they would actually either be able to make um bets themselves or have or be speaking to somebody over a mobile phone which would give you a reasonably um rapid response and they could sort of then immediately hit the button to get the bet in and have an advantage over um somebody else simply just using a normal internet connection and therefore so there's there's real money at stake here and i think so, so that's that that was one that um would very much benefit from the sort of ultra low latencies that um 5G to enable and probably getting down to the 50 millisecond or 30 millisecond level would be good enough there. Okay, um, thank you for that as well, Phil. Um, this is it for the Rethink Wireless uh, podcast this week. Um, I want to thank everyone for listening, and I hope we well we hope you enjoyed this episode, and of course we hope also that you will join us again next week. Um, thank you, and it's bye bye from me. Bye-bye from me. Thank you and goodbye.